2: You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty show. What didn't get that much coverage on cable news yesterday is two more soldiers dying in Afghanistan. First deaths of the year of 2020 of yet another year of being in Afghanistan. Now, you would think in light of the Washington Post's Afghanistan papers, in which we learned that three administrations have misled at best, flat out lied to us at worst about the progress we're making in Afghanistan and how they have no idea why we're he they're there what mm-hmm. the goal is multiple administration multiple secretaries of defense multiple military strategists no idea what the plan is you'd think that there'd be outrage in the media media hates war and they certainly hate Trump right. seems like a great story but no just nobody really cares that much that, it's boring. that's boring nobody's paying attention that Staff Sergeant Ian P McLaughlin 29. Father of four. Oh, my. And PFC McGill Avilion, 21 from Illinois, starting out his life as a kid at 21. Right. Both died yesterday at the hands of the Taliban in an IED attack for freaking what? I'll tell you what for. And this is an awful thing to say in the United States of America. Uh, and you don't ever want to. You don't you don't want people to feel this. who have got kids serving, but they died for nothing. They died for Nothing nothing because people can't get their act together and decide what to do and because the media doesn't give a crap right. the feud between Warren and Bernie or Trump said this what look what he tweeted yesterday is way more interesting than drilling down on why the hell we have citizens of this country dying for nothing
3: trillions of dollars being wasted too yeah money that could be you know spent at home or returned to the taxpayers yeah, it is. Nobody cares. Absolutely maddening.
2: Nobody cares.
3: It's just it's a drip, drip, drip of lives and money. It's not enough to get people's attention. The vague assurances that we're negotiating, they were hoping for a negotiated settlement and the Taliban and Afghanistan and women's rights and blah blah blah, and nobody's paying attention. And and it's it's you know there are, uh, there are a couple of metaphors in life, but uh, it's too serious, I think, to even engage in that. It's a bigger deal to end it than to continue to suffer from it. Or it seems like it, anyway, to politicians. And they might be right. That's the stupid side of politics. If if Donald J. Trump were to declare from the Oval Office right now, that's it, we're not losing another life in Afghanistan, we're not spending another $100 other than, you know, standard foreign aid to kind of keep them on our side. Um if you were to announce that right now, the Democratic Party would go berserk and they would bring up women's rights and afghan uh, Afghan children and and the opioid trade is going to grow and uh, a thousand horrible repercussions of that happen. So would a lot of Republicans and so would Republicans. And if a Democratic president next time around does the very same thing, the rhetoric would be a hundred percent reversed. Yeah, I heard a lot of politics is stupid and
2: phony. I did hear a strategist last night on uh, Tucker, and I I think he's absolutely right. The only person that can get us out of this is Trump. And probably if he wins a second term, right, uh, then he doesn't have to worry about it anymore. That might be the best thing that would come out of Trump winning a second term that and he can stick with the China deal because he would have nothing else to lose at that point. He could just pull us out of Afghanistan. Okay, Rand Paul and whoever else and Democrats, like, beat me up for want. We're out. We're done with this. Mm-hmm. And it would go down in history as a wise move, I guarantee you. I, I think so.
3: I think so. But you see this in business a lot, too. Nobody gets fired for continuing to do the same losing thing. The status quo is so attractive to the risk averse. And politicians have to be risk averse because we're just—I don't know—the elect. I'm not impressed by us as an electorate. But anyway, the guy who or woman who says no, this drip, drip, drip of lives and money is ending now. It's not going anywhere. There's no point to it. I'm ending it, and I will take the slings and arrows of the negatives that come with ending it. But I can't abide with it continuing. They'll get the hell beaten out of them. I don't for rejecting the crappy status quo.
2: I don't quite understand why there's not the... Because the, the media hates Trump so much. The media hates war. I don't understand why it's not a story that they like to latch on Listen, and
3: they're liars, too, a lot of them. Say it was still winnable and worth it under Obama. But coincidentally, two weeks after Trump took office, it became unwinnable and not worth doing, and Trump's a crappy guy for keeping us there. Go ahead, start that narrative, MSNBC. I'll repeat it if that would be helpful. You know, to to end this, this
2: stupidity. You used to talk about how, well, the, the reason we're there is to keep an eye on Pakistan or whatever else the strategy is, and I always thought, I hope that's true. Yeah. Well, we now know from reading the Afghanistan papers, no, there was nothing, because behind the closed doors they're saying, what are we doing here? I right. don't know. Right. Same as you and me. Ask ten Americans at random. Uh, if you want,
3: uh, sort them out for who's the most informed. Ask them, you know, how much are you into the news and events, and pick the ten best informed people you can. And then ask them each one of them, "What are we doing in Afghanistan? What's our purpose?"
2: If my son joined the military, well, I'm sorry. Let me let me finish. If if you get two solid, I think I
3: knows. I would be shocked, and if if those two were wrong, you know, even I'd be shocked.
2: That's been going on for almost 20 years. It could be going on in 8 years. Right. When, when uh, my uh, oldest is old enough to serve. If he went over there and died, right? I, I don't know how I'd wrap my head around that. Right. I don't know how any family does. Michael, I think we need transition music. So we were talking about all you can eat buffets and specifically, uh, was that on the podcast? That was on the secret podcast, which you don't shh, get to hear. Shh, we're not supposed to say that. It's called
3: bro. one more thing. It's like an extra, extra long segment of the show. We do one uh, several days of the week and yesterday's was on how to beat. And all-you-can-eat buffet. If you don't beat, go- meaning get, rip off
2: the proprietor. Yeah, if you don't go into an all-you-can-eat buffet with the goal of winning, <laughs> you've already lost. Well, yeah, why did you How even about show if up? If I eat till I'm pleasantly full, well, uh, did you a, win a or
3: Reasonable not? variety of healthy foods. <laughs> and the rich get richer. Did they still what? make a profit or not? <laughs>
2: I want them to to not make a profit. I I won. (laughs) Re-examine your business practices. (laughs) I'm the winner, I declare as I waddle out of the place. (laughs) Hands up. Sick to my stomach. So that was a brief recap of what we
3: were discussing, and a number of people reacted on the email line, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. Hey, Jack and Joe, Kevin, the uh, Fagafee, Texas Marine, checking in. Friend of Armstrong and Getty over 15 years. Fagafee. Oh, I have a tale of how four young Marines conquered a nearly empty Sizzler. Remember Sizzler? Sizzler Hmm. is still there. One night, uh, me and three of my buddies, we went to our local Sizzler for all-you-can-eat shrimp. We ordered and powered through our first plates of tiny steaks, six or so shrimp in our sides. After our fifth plate of six shrimp each... Our waitress gave up and started bringing us platters full of shrimp so we could just share while making her life a bit easier. After several of those, she came up and asked us if we were going to want more. Of course, we replied. (laughs) To which she responded, It'll be a little while. We had to send someone to another sizzler to get more shrimp. Oh, geez. We all cheered like we had just won the Stanley Cup.
2: Then waited for more food and consumed vast quantities. Yeah, well, we learned yesterday in the podcast and they didn't do it right there. You gotta, you gotta slow down the process. Tiny plates. They use giant, uh, spatulas, fork spoons for the stuff that will fill you up and is cheap, like potatoes and rolls. Right. They use tiny little tongs for the expensive meats and stuff like Surgical that. Surgical right? tweezers, practically.
3: <laughs> so, I mean, this, now this is not an all-you-can-eat buffet. This is a different situation. It's the all-you-can-eat shrimp sure. platter, but. Sure. Uh, I, I I get the whole tiny tongs thing because you got to reach in and grab one and grab another, then grab another, and grab another. And behind, before you know it, the guy behind you is looking at you like, what the hell? Would you hurry up, please? And you think, all right, that's
2: enough. And right, that's how they get you. The way they get you those is they slow walk everything, and I've right. been through mm-hmm. that many times. Yeah. I plow through a plate, I order another, and it's like 15 minutes before they bring me my next plate of pancakes. The pan key for those is you order your second when yeah. you get the first. Yeah, I I with- keep them coming. I was with a buddy of mine who's probably listening right now. He did that at the IHOP during an All You Could Eat. He'd order his next plate when they arrived with mm-hmm. his plate, and then he, he he was able to just keep it coming. I think he ate 16. My kids were amazed.
0: <laughs> this is the best of Armstrong and Getty.
3: I'd like to welcome to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Uh, for the first time, I believe, as a guest in many, many years since she was a tiny little kid, uh, my daughter Delaney. Uh I made a rookie mistake. I used a microphone that needed phantom power. Those of you in the music business, you know what I'm saying. We have switched mics and I think this will work. Can you say hello? Hello. Everybody. Ah, dang it, it's not working. What's the what the?
2: It's the phantoms. Yeah, phantom power. Midnight. No, that's from Cats. Do I know a song from Phantom of the Opera? Uh, operas are hard to to sing cuz they're mostly in other languages. No, Phantom of the Opera is not like that. Phantom of the Opera is not actually. We sure it has opera
3: right in the name. <laughs> Boy, I hope you don't know that song. All right, well, listen, we'll share a mic for this segment. Okay. And then I'll figure out what's going on uh, in a minute. Don't worry, sweetie. Are you allowed to be Speaking that close
2: to each other in your own home?
3: Uh, yes, we uh-huh. are. And 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 go to hell if you don't like it. Um, <laughs> so uh, you can say hello again if you'd like.
4: Hello, everyone.
3: Uh, little D mentioned to me, it's been ages since you've talked to Jack.
4: Yeah, how are you doing?
2: I'm fantastic. How are you?
4: I'm doing pretty good. Quarantine's kind of got me down, but, you know, it is.
2: what. Yeah, to be your age and stuck in your parents' house, I can't even imagine.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and to that topic, that was the most popular question, and, uh, you know, it's cool, but so what do you think of school and your life being put on hold all of a sudden, and you got to live with mom and dad for God knows how long?
4: In the nicest way possible. It sucks. <laughs>
2: uh, data data uh, supports that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, data, the data back setup. Yeah.
4: Like, don't get me wrong. I have a really good relationship with both my parents, but um, no one wants to spend their 20s in their hometown. And it's it's just being pulled out of an entire life you've made. And I know personally for me that's a life on the East Coast. Mm. Um, so it's just kind of all of a sudden I'm telecommuting with a time difference of three hours. So it's just kind of every sense of normalcy is kind of gone. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah. Everybody that was young can fully relate to, yeah, I like my parents fine. That's good. I'm a d- adult. I'm an adult now. I'm out on my own. I got a life. I got lots of things I'm doing that I ne- don't necessarily want to do around my parents. So. Well, in my case, you know, I wouldn't
3: have wanted to do it because, uh, you know, I was getting after it with my friends. I mean, we were living large and the rest of it. Delaney has the, uh, the advantage of she comes home and the house is bumping.
4: Yeah, it's definitely a fun time. Uh, There's a lot of experiences that I might tell in a few years, but but for right now.
3: this is all off the record. Wow. All right, you? (laughs) Well, hey, listen, I will tell you this, and, and Delaney knows this, it's... I feel bad. When I was twenty years old, I mean, to be yanked away from school and my friends and my band and my job and the rest of it, and all of a sudden I got to go live with mommy and daddy again. But
2: is the, I, but is the bar well, always open at the Getty household? I mean, does it ever close, or is it just like Vegas? It's pretty much twenty four hours a day. There's no clocks on the wall. Yeah, no clocks. <laughs> They're pumping oxygen into the rooms to keep everybody awake. Honey, honey, let me handle that question. Now we're trying to be responsible. <laughs> my God. <clears throat> we're trying. Sometimes uh, the Canasta games go long, but
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I will tell you this though. And uh, I'll speak for myself and Delaney can merely roll her eyes and move on to the next topic. Uh, the cool part of it is, is, um, and this is true of my other two kids as well is she is my offspring, but we're friends and we're really good friends, which is cool. And it's been crazy fun to have her home because we have these verbal jousting matches. Um, just to keep ourselves sharp. And also, we get to talk about the, uh, you know, the issues of the day and like some of the stuff you're studying right now, the war related stuff. You want to talk about that a little bit?
4: Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm currently in a class called, uh, Law Law and Ethics of War, um, at my school, which is taught by a a major in the U.S. Army, which is super cool because it's actually someone with real world experience. Um, But it's definitely a lot of the things we've been talking about have been pretty extreme topics, like whether or not drones should be allowed in war, whether or not... uh, What do you
2: think about a drone strike on the head of the World Health Organization? Would that be legal or...
4: Yes! Oh, you're asking her. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm going to have to refer you back to my dad on that one. I like
2: the idea of it.
4: I I don't want my professor to hear this and, you know, it to impact my grade in any way. Uh. But, yeah, it's a lot of real-world discussions that have definitely not been like any class I've ever taken before um, in college.
2: Hey, in terms of taking classes in general right now, what percentage of uh, normal are you getting in terms of the education you're getting, do you think? Do you feel like it's like doing the online thing is 80% of being there, uh, 60%, 100%?
4: So I think it would be really hard to give a percentage in talk radio.
2: Because- you make things up. That's uh, one thing you would learn.
4: <laughs> in um,
2: you act like yeah. you've done a study, and
4: of course, of course, uh, this is my one-person study. Yes, it's a large margin of error. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what I'd say is. I am getting the same information. Like the the day-to-day knowledge, yeah, that's being transmitted. Um, maybe it's harder to pay attention overall, but I'm getting that same info. The part that's harder and the part that I'd like to see more of is so much of the great things about going to school is being able to go to your professor after classes and have that 30-second conversation mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense to go to office hours for. Right. It's like right. a lot of my enrichment and a lot of the professors i've made better relationships with it's just going up to them after class and that's not something i can do right now
2: i'm sure that's something that they could work out though i mean this was all thrown together this wasn't you know the these the, the current way they're doing things wasn't a uh, planned but if you had a little time to think about it and a little more resources i'm sure they could come up with a way around that
3: right and also we've talked a little bit about how as the stage is different from radio which is different from tv the art of keeping people interested uh and riveted on a little computer screen is very different
2: than doing it live yeah would you say it was harder to pay attention you mean there's more distractions at home with the all night party or uh just just to like staring at a computer screen is less engaging playing animal crossing on a second screen while the lecture is going on
4: (laughs) i will not conform confirm nor deny any of that uh (laughs) however um it's definitely i think just staying engaged my professors who they've now put in our participation grade you have to have your webcam on those classes are going a lot better than the ones who have said it's optional. Uh, because when it's pfft. optional... Any teacher
2: the- who ever says this is optional, I might, even when I was a little kid, all the way through getting older, I always thought, you just told 90% of the people here they don't have to do it, and they're not going to do it. All right, You're just
3: cheating yourself,
2: Jack. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Done.
4: <laughs> There's that one-person study again. Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. Exactly. Well, hey, we had uh, listeners submit a bunch of questions for little D. Uh, which uh, perhaps in the next segment, she has chosen the one she would like to answer. And uh, why don't we do that? I have pre-deselected some of the most embarrassing and or um, uh, abusive ones. Mm. Some of you people really need psychological help, although the vast majority have been quite nice and, and, and lovely in spirit.
2: There are so. people that submitted questions to your daughter yes. that you don't that, you, that, that weren't nice.
3: No, from the
2: internet? From the internet? (laughs) From social? You mean the people anonymously through Twitter did that? Yeah, shocked to the core. Yeah, I know. It's disappointing.
0: (laughs) Armstrong and Getty across America. BP supports more than two hundred and seventy-five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and. Producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the capital region turn to for nonstop action all winter long.
3: and Getty. This is the best
0: of Armstrong and Getty. Right
3: now, our riveting guest, my daughter Delaney, for the first time on the show in many, many, many years, home from college, whether she likes it or not. I think I got her mic working. Does it work now?
4: Yeah, yeah. Can I'd you say, hear that? I'd say riveting is a strong word.
3: Okay, there you go. That's better. Got it fixed in the nick of time, 15 minutes late. Uh, so we have questions from listeners, which was a
2: terrible idea. <laughs> so the idea was, uh, what questions... Do people have for your daughter? Yes. And yeah. and the ones you rejected, were they a lot about, uh, like, uh, you? Was that it? There
3: was one that said, is he grumpy at home, too? <laughs> Except it wasn't that charitable. Right. That's actually not that bad a question, but uh, what that questions? That my question.
2: <laughs>
4: okay. That's one of the questions I'm answering. Oh, yeah.
2: oh there you go. Yeah.
3: All right, go ahead. What's What's the first one?
4: Um, so the first one, a lot of them were actually about our relationship, which I thought was kind of sweet, actually, and unexpected from the Internet. Um, well,
3: this is our beloved Armstrong and Getty listeners. These are fags.
4: So the first one was, what is some advice for us dads who want to keep a strong bond between our little huh. girls and us? Oh, good
3: one. Oh, that's sweet.
4: Yeah, and, um, you know, of course, feel free to chime in on this because I only have 50% of this. Uh But a big thing with me growing up was I always felt like you and mom really trusted me. So it was one of those, you trusted me to make dumb decisions but not dangerous ones.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'd send you off uh, with the uh, admonition, no felonies, no pregnancies.
4: Yeah, yeah. Oh, and so I, you're, talk- oh, think you're I talking about
2: older, like high school and stuff like that, junior high, high school?
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, gotcha. I think when they're little, you can afford to be a little more hands on. But especially what kept us close was when I kind of reached those teenage years. Hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, uh, yeah. We could talk about that at greater length. Are some you other a particularly
2: time, but... trustworthy person, though? Yes. What, if, what do if,
4: I want to say that on? What her? if you got a
2: kid? <laughs> I don't. But what if you got a kid that's clearly a sociopath? You know gonna <laughs> like like her dad. Um, <laughs> Well, that's that's
3: a little different. Uh, you know, you try to keep them between the guardrails. Uh, in other words, keep them alive and keep them out of the penitentiary, I think. And you just have to let your kids make mistakes. You have to teach. I mean, you learn through making dumb decisions. Mistakes and understanding. are awesome.
2: I haven't learned through making dumb decisions. I continue to make them. But I suppose in
3: theory, a- you have to learn yes. through making dumb decisions. <laughs> All right. What else you got? Um, well, and the other thing is, and it ought to be said, I have said since my first daughter was born, my girls are never going to be desperate for a man to love them because they're going to know their dad does. And so,
2: you know, and that's what I keep thinking about the Tiger King. the the the, the, the and they're are boys, but same sort of situation on the Tiger King. Just I can just see their upbringing. Right. Uh, in them as adults and needing, right. you know, uh, anyway. Desperate for approval. Yeah. I believe there is one Tiger King related question, isn't there? There
4: <laughs> is one Tiger King related. Go ahead. Re- Yeah, okay.
2: why
4: do we hit that? <laughs> so Car- hey, I got was... a question
2: for you. Did Carol Baskin kill her husband?
4: <laughs> yes. Okay, there you go. <laughs> no hesitation. Yeah, no hesitation there. Um. So the, the Tiger King question was, which farm would you rather live on, Joe Exotic or Doc Antles? <laughs> Ooh, that's a um, good one. And as a 20-year-old young woman, I think for anybody who's seen the show, they might see some obvious reasons why I wouldn't want to uh, live on Doc Antle's farm.
2: Yeah, that'd be a bad choice for you.
4: Not an attractive man. Um,
2: and the exploitive sex cult thing.
4: You know, that part doesn't make me that mad. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if, it was, if it was Brad Pitt leading it, then hey, maybe it was that girl. Yeah, yeah. So in general, in general.
4: 100%.
2: You be quiet, Sean.
3: <laughs> Uh, but but you you had you wanted to go undercover, right?
4: Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I was so upset when they got to the part of the documentary where the, it said the FBI raided the raided the farm? No, zoo, zoo. zoo the yeah. roadside
2: zoo.
4: The roadside zoo, and I was so upset because I was so willing to be that one informant where they'd send me in and I'd get all the dirt and then when I came out, I'd have a job with the FBI. Oh, it'd be so, awesome. I was willing to do that, and they just wasted their opportunity. You know
2: where the shorts that apparently are mandatory, if you take that
4: job? I'm um, not going to say that in front of my dad. I'll, I'll tell you
2: what,
3: though. I've seen you in those shorts.
4: I'll tell you what, though.
2: Okay, that's Rose. rude.
3: You, what? You I got, tell her, hey, save up. You can buy the rest of those shorts. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's, that's good dad commentary. You, you oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You do have to point out there are no stumps at Doc Antle's farm. <laughs> where there are a number of stumps at the other one. <laughs>
3: Only some of those stumps were tiger related.
4: When it comes to stumps, I think some is too many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
3: that's true. Ocean needs to look into that. All right, what else you got uh, in the questions?
4: Um, let's see. Uh, when transitioning from home to school, what has surprised you, and what had you wished you known? Uh, a lot of the questions came from especially dads whose girls were going to college. I'd say my biggest takeaway was um, you don't have to be happy right away. I feel like the the biggest thing that a lot of young college students are impressed upon is college is great. College is fantastic. Like, you'll really become yourself, but it doesn't feel like that right away. Um, you know, you're going to feel lost, especially if you go far away. It's going to be a culture shock. And just you don't have to be happy, but that will come.
2: Well, becoming yourself is hard. I mean, that's yeah. a hard thing for any human to do. Right. And just being displaced like that. That's really good advice. There's nothing wrong with you if you're a little freaked out for a while. Yeah. It's all life advice, just not even school related. But if happiness isn't immediate, that's, that's an okay thing. I live in a college town and I can see people trying out their new look, especially the, the, the younger crowd. I'm going to try, I'm going to try the cowboy look or I'm going to try the, I'm a goth person now. That guy doesn't normally wear bracelets, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, you got to give it a try. Sure. We got like ninety
3: seconds. What do you have? One of your favorites? There?
4: Uh, yeah. When um, your favorite sentimental gift from your dad, and I think this one kind of fed into the first question, but there's no physical item I can point to. But what I can point to is experiences that we had. Um, so like, I came home from school one day, and my dad said, "Get ready," uh, and we drove to a train station and spent an entire day in San Francisco. Awesome. And that's what sticks out to me. Like those experiences, not just, okay, I got a my little pony one.
2: Experiences,
3: not stuff. That's a good one. Well, and you know, one of my all time faves was when you said you'd never actually seen it snowing. And so we just headed up into the mountains as far as it took, um, until we found snowing. (laughs) And that was, that was great. That was a good time. Uh, all right. One more quick one.
4: Um. Tell us about your tattoo. Are you fine with that one? Yeah, go ahead. Um, so actually, my tattoo is of a pumpkin.
2: On on your, uh, it's on your face.
4: No, yes, yes, <laughs> right under kinda the eye. Like, it's kinda, the teardrop tattoo. Kind of like
2: Post Malone. <laughs> exactly. Teardrop exactly. pumpkin.
4: <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, the pumpkin came from that was just actually it comes from my relationship with my dad, and it's um, you know, my siblings are quite a deal older than me, and when I was growing up. Uh, we always went to the pumpkin patch together.
2: Awesome,
3: and and my nickname for you too. Yeah, which was private. Uh, private. That's private. Mm-hmm. That's too much, but it's pumpkin related. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks. No problem. That was awesome. Y- you're definitely the most appealing presence on this show in many years. <laughs> Not surprised, guys. <laughs> Check out the great new swag, like the new masks at ArmstrongandGetty.com.
2: You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. The best masks I've seen, and they say Armstrong and Getty on them? You can get one at armstrongandgetty.com. This is the best of
3: Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of
2: Armstrong
0: and Getty.
3: One of the difficulties of talking about something Matt Taibbi has written is that he's such a good, solid writer, and he, there's so little fluff in what he writes, you don't know what to leave out. So he's got
2: many thoughts in his head.
3: I'll I'll hit you with a, ch- a chunk of his, uh, his recent story on white fragility, in quotes. Um, it, actually, one of the more amusing parts of this article, which I'm going to leave out, is he absolutely blasts the hell out of this woman, Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility.
2: Well, he calls the book Horse Ass. It's the right. number one book in the country, and he yeah. calls it Horse Ass. <laughs>
3: yeah, Yep. Yeah. So here's what Matt says in part. A core principle of the academic movement that shot through elite schools in America since the early 90s was the view that individual rights, humanism, and the democratic process are all just stalking horses for white supremacy. The concept, as articulated in books like former corporate consultant Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, reduces everything, even the smallest and most innocent human interactions, to racial power contests. I will depart from the text and tell you, I, I find this book one of the most loathsomely racist things I've ever seen. It's been mind-boggling, he writes, to watch White Fragility celebrated in recent weeks. Then he gives some examples, including Jimmy Fallon gushing. Um, White fragility has been pitched as an uncontroversial roadmap for fighting racism at a time when, after the murder of George Floyd, Americans are suddenly inappropriately interested in doing just that. Except this isn't a straightforward book about examining one's prejudices. Have the people hyping this impressively crazy book actually read it? Impressively crazy. D'Angelo isn't the first person to make a buck pushing tricked-up pseudo-intellectual horse-ass as corporate wisdom, but she might be the first to do it selling Hitlerian race theory, as in Adolf Hitler. White fragility is a simple message. There's no such thing as universal human experience, and we are defined not by our individual personalities or moral choices, but only by our racial category. Which is why I think this is one of the most aggressively racist things ever published. If your category is white, bad news. You have no identity apart from your participation in white supremacy. Here's a quote. Anti blackness is foundational to our very identities. Whiteness has always been predicated on blackness, which naturally means a positive white identity is an impossible goal. That's a quote from the book. Imagine explaining that to the Vikings, you know, and not the Minnesota Vikings, but Vikings and the year 632, you realize your whiteness is defined entirely by blackness. They'd be, be like, there are there are dark-colored people? What? They wouldn't have any idea. But no, they had no idea.
2: Imagine teaching it to your kids today.
3: You oh. envision Vikings much more willing to engage in debate than I do. That's a good point. <laughs> uh, let's see. D'Angelo instructs us that there's nothing to be done here except, quote, strive to be less white. To deny this theory or have the effrontery to sneak away from the tedium of D'Angelo's lecturing, what she describes as leaving the stress-inducing situation is to affirm her concept of white supremacy. This intellectual equivalent of the ordeal by water, if you float, you're a witch, is orthodoxy across much of academia, which is scary. Our, God, our universities are so perverse right now. Oh, my God.
2: Right. It's the idea that if people launch into this horse S, as he rightly called it, and you just roll your eyes and whatever, and walk away, that's proof that you're a white supremacist. Right. Right. D'Angelo's writing style... If you engage and argue with it, of course that's proof you're a racist. So it's the whole, if you float, you're a witch. If you drown, well, you're drowned.
3: Right. D'Angelo's writing style is pure pain. The lexicon favored by intersectional theorists of this type is built around the same principle as George Orwell's Newspeak, It banishes ambiguity, nuance, and feeling, and structures itself around sterile word pairs like racist and anti-racist, platform and de-platform, center and silence, that reduce all thinking to a series of binary choices. Uh, Oh, sorry. Pages stuck together. I licked my finger, probably got the vid now. Writers like D'Angelo like to make ugly verbs out of ugly nouns and ugly nouns out of ugly verbs. There are countless permutations on centering and privileging alone. In a world where only a few ideas are considered important, redundancy is encouraged. For example, to be less white is to break with white silence and white solidarity, to stop privileging the comfort of white people. Or Ruth Frankenberg, a premier white scholar in the field of whiteness, describes whiteness as multidimensional. And then he, uh, well, he talks more about her horrific writing style, but then, uh, one key part of the book is where she addresses Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. One line of King's speech in particular, that day he might, uh, that one day he might be judged by the content of his character and not the color of his skin. It was actually his children he was talking about, but anyway, was seized upon by the white public because the words were seen to provide a simple and immediate solution to racial tensions. Pretend we don't see race and racism will end. Color blindness was now promoted as the remedy for racism, with white people insisting they didn't see race, or if they did, it had no meaning to them. That this speech, this is Taibbi now, that this speech was held up as the framework for American race relations for more than half a century, precisely because people of all races understood King to be referring to the difficult and beautiful long-term goal is discounted, of course. White fragility is based on the idea that human beings are incapable of judging each other by the content of their character. And if people of different races think they're getting along or even loving one another, they probably need immediate anti-racist training. This is an important passage because rejection of King's dream of racial harmony uh, has become a central tenet of this brand of anti-racist doctrine mainstream press outlets are rushing to embrace.
2: Yeah, I love that angle of it. I, uh, I was wondering over the weekend, cause I heard another, uh, thinker, this happens to be a right winger, but a similar idea that, uh, the I have a dream speech was about how America has not lived up to its promise. You, you know, you wrote a promissory note and then you've, you've, you know, uh, defaulted on it. Right. To, for black Americas. For Black America, well, the new belief is no. Uh, America didn't have a promise that it didn't live up to. It was always racist from the beginning. the the The, the foundation is racism. Mm-hmm. So they're re- the purpose
3: is racism, right?
2: So they're rejecting Martin Luther Martin Luther King Jr.'s entire premise. I wonder at what point. I really believe in the next couple of years we'll start to see MLK statues come down. Wow. Wow. that he will no longer be seen as somebody you can tolerate. Yeah. Because his his view is not, well, as you just read there, his view does not match with the modern thinking of the most popular book in the country.
3: Right. Right. Well, and it is notable that liberals like Matt Taibbi and James Lindsay, the professor from Portland State, and then and Bill Maher, and, and, and the, the whole list of them are terrified by these new theories because they know that, they will lead inevitably toward more racism, not less; more hatred, not less; more discrimination, not less. It's it's absolute poison. And you people, you poor overeducated white guilters, are drinking the poison. You're going to be part of the the cause of terrible things in the future. Just one more note uh, to illustrate how stupid this book is and how badly written it is. This is back to Matt Taibbi, and we will post this piece at armstrongandgetty.com. We're working on it right now. The, most amazing, the book's most amazing passage concerns the story of Jackie Robinson, quoting from the book, uh, White Fragility. The story of Jackie Robinson is a classic example of how whiteness obscures racism by rendering whites, white privilege, and racist institutions invisible. Robinson is often celebrated as the first African American to break the color line. While Robinson was certainly an amazing baseball player, this storyline depicts him as racially special, a black man who broke the color line himself. The subtext is that Robinson finally had what it took to play with whites, as if no black athlete before him was strong enough to compete at that level. Imagine if instead the story went something like this. Jackie Robinson, the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball. Well, you know, I could refute it, but uh, Taibbi has won awards, so I'll just read it. (laughs) There is not a single baseball fan anywhere, literally not one, except perhaps Robin DiAngelo, I guess, who believes Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier because he, quote, finally had what it took to play with whites. Everyone familiar with this story understands that Robinson had to be exceptional, both as a player and as a human being, to confront the racist institution known as Major League Baseball. His story has always been understood as a complex, long-developing political tale about overcoming violent, systemic oppression. For D'Angelo to suggest history should recast Robinson as the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball is grotesque and profoundly belittling. Robinson's story, moreover, did not render whites, white privilege, and racist institutions invisible. It did the opposite. Robinson uncovered a generation of job inflation from mediocrity, white ballplayers, well, that's kind of a distraction for baseball fans. But the point is, freaking nobody read that situation like Robin D'Angelo says everybody read it. Nobody. This book is phony, it's poison, it's garbage.
2: So he, he goes on in that article to get into the times that we're living in now, cancel culture and all that. People everywhere today are being encouraged to snitch out schoolmates, parents, and colleagues for thought crime. The New York Times wrote a salutary piece about high schoolers scanning social media accounts of peers for evidence of anti-black racism to make public. Because what can go wrong with encouraging teenagers to start submarine, submarining each other's careers before they've even finished growing? Wow. There's a movement among high school kids and the New York Times thought it was fantastic. Go through your, 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 your other people in your classes social media accounts. Find the racism. Bring it forward so that they can be punished for it. And they quoted one kid uh, uh, saying, I can't imagine, you know, somebody saying this and they go on to be a lawyer someday.
3: Yeah. Well, and what's incredibly dangerous, and you all know this, right, is that they brand everything racism. The word racism has now been twisted to mean, or racist has been twisted to mean, anybody who opposes us. So if racism is everything, racism is nothing. So they've they've absolutely enabled real racists.
2: You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty show. Armstrong and
4: Getty
3: Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.